0: Good morning, gentlemen. Great to see you. Well, there go the lights again. I hate to tell you, but uh, the budget's been tight. <laughs> and uh, we had not paid our electric bill. April Fool's Day, yeah. Turn those lights back on, would you? All right. Well, I promise whoever's here from MLG&W will pay our bill this week. All right. One of my favorite theologians. It was Jerry Clower. Uh, yeah, all right. You know him? Mississippi comedian. He's gone on to be with the Lord. He's really laughing now. Uh, you know, Jerry used to tell these stories about the Ledbetters. And one of my favorites is when Marcel Ledbetter was on his little moped in his uncle Versi's lumberyard. And uh, Uncle Versi told him, don't, don't go outside the lumberyard now. I want you to just, just play right here in the lumberyard. Of course, Marcel didn't listen to him. Marcel, Gets out on the highway out there in Mississippi, and he comes to the only light in town, <clears throat> and there is a an towner that pulls up right next to him, and it's a brand new BMW, and it's black and shiny, just just beautiful. Marcel just never seen a car like that, and he's just looking at it like this, and, and the man notices that this little boy in the moped's looking at him, so he just rolls down his window, you know, says, "Son, would you like to look in this car?" Oh man, yes, sir, sure. So he just leans over and looks at there, and looks at all the bells and whistles on the panel, you know, the dashboard. He smells the leather. He just can't believe that car. And he says, he says to the man, he says, "Now, how fast will this car go?" The man says, "Well, I can get this thing up to 100 miles an hour, just just like that." Really, guy? Can you do that? And he says, and so the light turns green. The man goes, rolls the window back up. He just shoots that, just takes off, and he he gets this thing up in about four and a half seconds. He's approaching 100 miles an hour. And he's just thinking, that little boy is just enjoying himself. But he looks in the rearview mirror, and he sees this little spot. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it just goes, phoong, goes right by. He's still accelerating, and then he sees a little spot in his, you know, straight ahead, it's it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, phoong, And then he, he keeps driving. He's still accelerating. He's around 125, 130 now. And he sees a little spot, and once again, in the, in the rearview mirror. It's getting big and beer. Whomp! Hits the back of his car. Well, it was the little boy on the motorcycle on the moped. And so he goes over. He just feels terrible. He pulls his car, car over and he checks out Marcel. and says, son, I'm just so sorry. Is there anything I can do to help you? And he says, yes, sir. If you'd just take my suspenders off your side view mirror, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> now, the reason I... The reason I tell that story is, gentlemen, a lot of you look like you're living lives just like that. You think you're speeding down the highway. It's just your suspenders. They're calling on to something, and you need to let them, let them go. Now, that's the reason for the retreat. That's the reason for that story. You need a retreat. You need to take those suspenders off the side view mirror and just put your feet up and relax. And it's amazing how much effort every year we put in to getting you to do what you need to do. It's amazing how much effort it takes. And it's amazing how good it is when you've done it. So now just do what the doctor prescribed, take that little list there right in front of you, just sign it out, and do whatever you need to do to register, just pass them around, everybody get registered, and hand those things in today. Let's get there and get that get those suspenders off the side view mirror. Some of you are looking real winded today uh, from all that activity you've been going through. It's a great retreat, and uh, retreat is is to get away from things. That's the whole purpose of it. So retreat. You need to plan that in your life. Even if you can't make amen retreat, you need to plan retreats in your life. You need to put them in the calendar. You're scheduled to be off. You're scheduled to take time devoted to thinking about the Lord, reconnecting with some brothers, and once again, getting perspective on life. In fact, I think that's what Thursday morning is all about. It's just a retreat. We're just retreating from being out there beating snakes, coming here you know, for an hour, And what do we do? Well, we get a breakfast, uh, we get to see our friends, and we look at the Word of God. That's exactly what you'll do on the Amen Retreat. Now let's look at the Word of God, speaking of that. Look back in Galatians 5. We've camped out on verses 22 and 23. We're going to continue to do so because this life of the Spirit is profound. And so often uh, Christian men, they'll profess their faith, they'll join the church, they'll start doing some work. You know, We expect people to put us to work figure out what we're good for and put us to it. And we like that. And so often we'll go right on through our church lives and never really think about the life of the Spirit and how distinctive it is. And let's look at what the Apostle says. He says early in verse 19 that the acts of the sinful nature, we know all about that. It's about sexual immorality. It's about lusting and doing what our bodies are are urging us to do. It's about dissensions and factions and warfare among men with big egos. We know all about that kind of life. It's about orgies and envy and uh, and the like. We know all about that life. Been there, done that. The Apostle Paul says it doesn't take us rocket scientists to live that kind of life. It doesn't take anything special. doesn't take, it take anything divine. We can handle that life all by ourselves, and we've done that. But he says, now the fruit of the Spirit is something else. Here's what it's like. The life led by the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the life of the Spirit is all about. And today, let's let's look at that a sixth word, goodness. Goodness. Now, once again, notice that goodness comes from God alone. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So we should expect that whatever however we've defined goodness that when we receive the spirit of god into our lives we should experience goodness in an entirely different way that should be expected and of course it is true goodness comes from god alone and here's why a god is good he is the definition of good what does david say in psalm 34 Taste and see that the Lord is good, or as the, as we just sang, uh, for the Lord our God is good, uh, Psalm one hundred. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, and is it, as we read in Psalm one thirty six, uh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. So the word Tov, you could I spell it in English, I guess T O V, is the Hebrew word for good and. You find in the Bible that that really there is one who defines good. There is one really who is ultimately good and that is God Himself. He is good in His very being. Secondly, you'll notice that His creation is good. And you can look throughout that first chapter in Genesis, the very first chapter of the Bible, and what do you see repeated over and over again almost every day of the week? And the Lord saw it and it was good. His creation was good. When He created on the sixth day the animals, it was good. When He created man and woman, He finished His creation, and then what are we told? He said, it is very good. (laughs) So the Lord's work, the work of His hands is good. So God is good in His being, and what He does in creation is good. He created the world. Good. Then notice thirdly about God that His providence is good. He not only made everything, but He sustains it. And that sustenance of the universe is good. It's part of God's goodness that sustains it, which gives us great encouragement, especially when in a fallen universe, a fallen world, a sin racked world, we still know that God sustains all things by His goodness. And the instance that I cite here in Genesis 50, you remember very well, with Joseph. Joseph at the young age of 17, 18, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Later on, of course, you know, through a series of circumstances, he ends up being the prime minister of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, and he's number two right under Pharaoh. He is a very powerful man internationally. And his brothers come because... because, Famine has hit Israel as well as Egypt, and so they travel to Egypt because they've heard that the Pharaoh there has a big storage of food, and we know why he did, because of Joseph's dreams that warned Pharaoh seven years ahead of time. So the brothers come, and through a series of circumstances, you know how that works out, Joseph eventually reveals himself. They didn't recognize him as the prime minister. He was speaking Egyptian. He wasn't even speaking Hebrew. He was speaking to them through a translator. They had no idea who he was. Finally, when he reveals himself to them, speaks in Hebrew to them, and says, I'm your brother, Joseph. Of course, they were terrified because the man, the brother, the, the half-brother that they had sold into slavery is now the most powerful man in the world. And in normal course of things, he would just simply take their heads off and that would be the end of it. They were terrified. They continued to be terrified even when he brought them back and put them in the land of Goshen and took care of them, especially when Father Israel died. Because when their daddy died, they knew now that Joseph was very likely to wreak the vengeance that they deserved. So they were terrified. What did Joseph say to them? He said, you intended it to me for evil, but God intended it for good. What good? He explains, to preserve a remnant of his people, to preserve his people. He had me sold into slavery suffering in the prison here, going through all the things I've gone through to bring me to the point of Pharaoh's right-hand man so that I could preserve God's people. God intended it for good all along. Now, gentlemen, what we learn, of course, as believers in Jesus Christ, that's exactly the way the Lord is working with us. That all kinds of people intend all kinds of things against us. Of course people are perpetrating evil against you. This is an evil world. But what we find out is... Romans 8.28, that we know that God works together all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So we can't see it right now. And I guarantee you, when Joseph was in prison, he was tempted to be bitter against his brothers and bitter against God. And God had to train him that he works through the sufferings and afflictions and even the evils of life to carry out his good purposes because... God is good. He created things good. He sustains them in a goodly manner. And He particularly works in His providence for the good of His own sons. That's exactly what He's doing with you. Now, sometimes in life, you can see this. Sometimes you can at least see part of what God's doing. You go through a major affliction. You come out on the other side and you look back. and You know what? That developed my character. It developed the character of people around me. This kind of thing happened. This kind of thing happened. How often have we noticed that when someone that we love dies, someone comes to the funeral and ends up getting converted? I mean, all kinds of amazing things happen that we can actually see in this life. But you won't see the full picture until you get home. We take it by faith. We know that one day we'll see it. We'll exchange faith for sight. But now we believe what God has told us that He's working everything together for the good of His people. So His good providence is in in particular uh, designed for the good of his sons. That's what he's doing, is promoting your welfare, promoting your goodness, even if you're having a hard time seeing it. That's the way it is from the Bible. Joseph learned that. It It was down to the bottom of his feet. How could he wreak vengeance against his brothers? He didn't take it personally. He took it personally this way that His being sold into slavery came from here. And He allowed His brothers to do the wicked deed. But He was the one in charge. And if, you, if you're having a hard time with this, the most wicked human act in the world was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There was absolutely no reason for that. It was completely unjust. And it was agonizing and awful, anguishing and all the rest. Who designed it? We are told that it was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, that Christ was handed over to wicked men. God set purpose and foreknowledge. So God designed this from all eternity. God was the one behind it. And that's the reason that when you see Jesus on the cross in His agony, He's looking to His Father. He trusts Him. He does say, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He's expressing the anguish of David in Psalm 22. He's fulfilling the prophecies. But at the very end, what does He say? Father, into Thy hands I commend My spirit. So, just as Job says, though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust Him. Why? Because I trust Him to bring a good end out of this. And that's the reason that Jesus endured the cross with joy. We are told that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and scorned its shame. Jesus Christ had joy set before Him. The joy of what? The joy of His Father's providence looking out for Him. Jesus knew there was not one thing He was going to suffer that was not infinitely rewarded. He knew that his sufferings would bring about the salvation of of all of God's people. He took great delight in this even as he suffered. So it's a combination of enduring the sufferings, experiencing the sufferings with tears oftentimes, and yet we have this irrepressible joy that comes from hope and knowing where we're going. This is because God is good in His providence. Our whole lives, one of the main things men need in life, is a deep and profound sense, a deep conviction of the providence of God in everything in their lives. And you'll find that godly men who have really led well have been men who are convinced that God is in charge of history in general and in, in their personal and particular history. And that gives us confidence to go through whatever we face without feeling as though we're being chastised or set aside. God is good in His providence. And then lastly, let's just notice about God's goodness is that His salvation is good. I mean, Isaiah 52, how blessed are the feet of those who proclaim good news. It's good news. The Gospel is; it means good news. So the whole redemptive story, God's work of saving His people is good news. And of course, in Mark and in many other places, You find where the Lord Jesus Christ in his own personal ministry, when he begins his public ministry, he goes out to proclaim good news and he does good deeds. Everything about what God has done to save his people is good. So what you see in the scriptures is, first of all, a presentation of who God is. That's the reason for the Bible. Who is God? And what has he done? And then what does he require of me? So we see, first of all, in goodness, that is who God is. God is good. He's the definition of good. And what He does is good. Everything that He does is good. And then we're going to see, secondly, that the good man is a man of God. If goodness can only come from God, then the good man must be a man of God. Now what's interesting is the way that the Bible uses the word good or goodness with respect to us guys. Let me tell you, i probably mentioned this to you before, but I think it bears repeating. This this came to my mind some years ago when Jim Collins' book came out uh, from, from Good to Great. And you remember what Collins did. I mean, we have some axiomatic uh, leadership principles in this great book. Uh, what he did, uh, if you haven't read it, I, I encourage you to do so. He took... Uh, model companies that had outperformed the uh, Dow Jones uh, market over a period of 15 years by a multiple of three. Okay, now think about this. Companies that had outperformed the market by a multiple of three. That's significant. Over a period of 15 years. So it's no flash in the pan. It's not just someone, you know, getting excited about a company and finding out later they overvalued it. No, this was a company that was actually growing at a rapid rate in its real value over a long period of time. He found 11 companies. And he took those 11 companies and he compared them to 11 other companies, uh, and the one I used to work for was in the other 11, uh, to use as contrast to show the difference between a very successful company and one that wasn't so successful. And what he did in his book was simply to reveal the common traits of those 11 very successful companies. And you remember we got the hedgehog principle from there, the, the flywheel principle. Remember that? You, just, you get the flywheel going. It takes a long time to get a flywheel going. It's very heavy. It has a lot of mass. Once you get it going, you can hardly stop it. And, of course, one of his, one of his uh, uh, illustrations is John Wooden. Well, everybody knows John Wooden, you know, probably the greatest college basketball coach who ever lived. And Wooden, who had, in a 12-year span, and so you young guys, you can't imagine what it's like when you hit the Final Four. It's always UCLA. I mean, it's just, it's just a matter of who they're going to beat this year. I mean, for 12 years, they won the championship 10 out of those years. When we were in the middle of that in the 60s, it, that didn't seem so phenomenal. But now when you see the teams that are, you just can't believe one team dominating for 12 years. Wooden was a genius. But what Collins reminds us of is this whole thing started in 1963 when they got their first championship. Now, do you know when Wooden started coaching at UCLA? 1948. (laughs) He had 15 years of no championships. That's called the flywheel principle. You take your life and your values, you work them into into your life, and it takes a long while before anybody's going to notice and before you can even see a difference in the organization. But you keep putting those values in. You keep pushing that flywheel, and pretty soon that flywheel is humming, and nobody can stop it. So you get into the 60s, that flywheel is going, and it has its own inertia, and nobody can stop it. So that that came in Jim Collins' book, very, very worthwhile principle. Another one that uh, I know we all value is is the one, just get the right man on the bus, you know? Get the right people on the bus. You can position them later. It's, It's who before it's what. Who do you have on your bus before you decide what are they doing? And that whole idea of of uh, uh, getting the right people on your bus came out of Colin's book. Of course, the level five leader. You know, the level four leader is a genius with a thousand assistants. The level five leader, though, he says it was common in every one of these 11 companies. You had a guy who did not have an extravagant office. He did not get himself on the cover of Time magazine like some other people that we could quote. Uh, he, he's, he usually has a back office. It's pretty scruffy. He's always humble, and he's com- completely committed to his work. The level five leader, and he's multiplying leaders instead of just adding or just directing other smart people. He's actually multiplying leadership. That's level five leadership as opposed to level four leadership and all the rest. So we, we know this great book is very much worth reading, but when I, after I've read it, sometime later, I started asking myself, I just looked at these words from good to great, I thought, well, I wonder if I look in the Bible, what would I find if I took my concordance and looked up "good," and I took my concordance and looked up "great." So I did that, and uh, here's what I found. "Great" is fairly common. Now you have to go to the KJV to get "great," uh, uh, because uh, the the word is translated a little bit differently in the NIV. But there's a there's a word in Hebrew that just means big or massive or impressive or influential and you get a lot of things that are, i mean david is called great moses is called great uh babylon is called great nineveh is great uh you have um uh all kinds of people that are called nabal the wicked nabal idiot uh was called a great man and that just means he had many possessions he was big man. So what I found when when I looked at this in the Bible, that great was actually fairly common. Then I looked up the word good, and here's what I found. You can't find, but the rarest of instances. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, you know there's one instance where a man is called a good man? One instance in the Old Testament, and here it is. David is grieving over his son Absalom. Everybody else knows that Absalom deserves to die. But David is worried about him in battle. They've gone out to fight Absalom. He doesn't want Absalom to be killed. Everybody else wants to kill the so-and-so for rebelling against his daddy. David is sitting there hoping for news to come from the battlefield. And here comes a man, Ahimeaz, who is running toward David. And David says, Oh, this will be good news because Ahimeaz is a good man. Of course, the news wasn't good. Well, he wasn't saying that Himeas is a, a great example of a good man. That was just a flippant remark. And that's all you get in the Old Testament for a good man. Now, when you look in the New Testament, you get only two examples, and both of them are given to us by Luke. Joseph of Arimathea, who took the body of Jesus and put it in his tomb, is called a good and upright man. There's one. And the second one I want us to look at for just a few moments this morning. His name is Barnabas. And Luke calls him a good man. Now, gentlemen, that's it. Now, here's why. Because when we use the word good, strictly speaking, we need to use it like Jesus used it. And do you remember on one occasion, a man came up to him and said, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say? He said, well, let's talk about that. Now, before he talked about anything else, he took the man on in his colloquial usage of the word good. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. That's what Jesus said. And you know how we use, hey, good buddy, and all the rest. We use it colloquially. And Jesus was just simply reminding him, theologically, good means something very precious. It's defined by who God is and what He has done. There's goodness. So let's be very careful when we use the word about a good man. I mean, I use it colloquially also. But let us be aware that in the Bible it's a rare thing. So actually, you go back to Jim Collins, the book that really needs to be written. Is going from great to good, because you think that going from good to great, great must be the rare, the the, you know, the rare uh, stratosphere up here. It's actually just the reverse. There are plenty of great people. There are there are three hundred million uh, millionaires. So we got we got great people. What we need are good people. They're very rare. So really, what we want to do is go from great to good. Jeremiah said to Baruch. uh, which was his secretary, at the time of the invasion of the Babylonians in Jerusalem. He said, Baruch, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. So actually what men have to do is to forsake the ambitions for greatness in order to have goodness. And it takes the smallest, subtlest forms. Because I would suppose... Everyone here would say, well, you know, I'm not really a great man. Yeah, but if you get down underneath the skin, we probably aspire to be. And we have our own little ways of doing it. Okay, so we're not Bill Gates. Okay, so we're not Barack Obama. We're not great at that level. But you know, in my little pond, I plan to be great. And I plan for everybody to know it. And we have our strategies for making our greatness known in our own little pond. And what the Bible is saying is you've got to forsake all that in order to seek goodness. And you can't have both. Now, of course, a good man can be, uh, be called a great man by the world. But the good man is not seeking that. Paul says about his own greatness in Philippians 3, he said, I consider it crap. He uses the word dung. We could use some other words for this. He says he doesn't just call it neutral. he doesn't say, oh, i don't bother with it. oh people you. Know. I call it dung. I forsake all that because I desire something greater. I desire to know Christ, and there's the sumum bonum: the highest good is Christ in his kingdom that's what we 're seeking. so we want to go from great to good. Now, how do we do that let's look at let's look for the rest of our time let's just go over to Acts eleven if you would. And here's the instance where Luke cites Barnabas as a good man. I'd like for us to look at this text and take the rest of our time to make some observations about the text, about what goodness really is. This is Acts chapter 11. Look at verse 19. Acts 11:19, page 17:75. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Now let's just stop right there. The persecution in connection with Stephen. That means, of course, Stephen's martyrdom. And after that happened, there was a big persecution in Jerusalem of all the Christians. And they fled. And it seemed so wicked and so terrible. Families were broken up. People were fleeing for their lives. It looked horrible, tragic. What was it? It was the beginning of the Christian mission. (laughs) It was good. It looked so tragic. It looked so awful. It looked so evil and so unjust. And it was actually the beginning of the Christian mission. So just notice that, that that's how the Christian mission actually got started beyond Jerusalem. But they were telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, imagine that telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, let's break the text up. And first of all, look at verse 23 and notice that the good man delights in God's grace toward others. He delights in God's grace toward others. Now, notice it says here about Barnabas in verse 23, he saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. (laughs) He saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. Now, so you have to realize some people were not glad. Those who were very monocultural who believed it was their ethnic group alone that could really understand the gospel and build the church, and they really didn't think that anybody else from another ethnic group belonged, they were not glad. It reminds us of Jonah who was told to go to Nineveh. He did not want to go. And after finally, you know, he gets thrown overboard. The big fish swallows him up, spits him out on the beach. Jonah is convinced to go. He goes and preaches. Those people get converted. He says, see, I told you, God, that's exactly what you do. You be nice to them. He was resentful. And we, we see in the first century one of the major problems is the church didn't want to break out of its own sort of natural family ethnic group. They were very ingrown. And they thought that God really only loved their kind of people. It's amazing. And when the people were scattered, you notice in the first verse we read in verse nineteen, what was their natural inclination? To look for the diaspora. Where are all the Jewish people? So it's like you send a missionary to Africa and they're looking for the expats. Where are the Americans? <laughs> well, more, more okay, can't find any Americans. Where are the Englishmen? We'll go to them next. Somebody who speaks English. Huh? As though that's what the reason we send our missionaries there. That's exactly what the people were doing when they were first scattered from Jerusalem. They were just talking to scattered Jews. That's, that's what they thought they were supposed to do. And sometimes that's what we think we're supposed to do. It's, it's ridiculous. We never really understood the goodness of God, that He loves all that He has made. So Barnabas gets it. And he sees that there are actually Gentiles that are coming to Christ, and he was glad. Now, Barnabas was sent buy the big cheeses in Jerusalem for particular reasons. One was he was Cyprian himself. So with these Greeks from Cyprus, they were becoming Christians. Barnabas kind of knew the local culture and the dialect, and he would be able to tell if this could possibly be true that these subhumans over in Cyprus were actually becoming Christians. So they knew that Barnabas had the culture to, to t- check that out, but they knew something else about Barnabas. He was a very gracious man. He was a good man. And they knew that if God was at work, the good God was at work in people who aren't good, that Barnabas would pick it up. And indeed he did. He took real delight when he saw God's grace evidenced in other people's lives. And you know what? This is way too rare even in the church. I remember a church I pastored before that in the Sunday school class one day, one of the elders was teaching. and Uh, I happened to be in the class. And he said, you know, a real friend is a guy who takes delight when he sees that you just bought your new BMW. He's really glad for you instead of envying you or judging you or anything like that. And I remember there was a physician who was sitting in the back of the Sunday school class, a friend of mine, and he said, I've never had a friend like that. You know, it is rare when someone loves you so much that they really do take delight in your success when you're elevated over them in some way. That's, that's the way Barnabas was. He, he really took delight in God's grace toward other people. And I think we have to ask ourselves this morning, do I know anything about that? Look, Jesus talks about this all the time. And probably his most famous address on this topic was uh, in Luke 15. Luke records it again. When Jesus talks about the parable of the older brother, you know, we think it's the parable of the prodigal. The whole parable was not about the prodigal. It was about the older brother, the one who is resentful. When this son of yours, he didn't call him my brother. He said, he said to his father, this son of yours took your estate. You gave it to him. You probably shouldn't have because he was completely irresponsible. He goes out there and squanders it. And now you bring him back and you're going to reinstate him as an heir. You've, you've put your ring on him. you put the robe on him. You're having this big feast for him. You've never had a feast for me. That's the opposite of what Luke is talking about. Barnabas was a good man. He took delight when he saw God working in another life and God blessing in another life. That's at the essence of goodness because that's the way God is. Secondly, if you keep your eyes still on verse 23, you'll see that he encourages, the good man does, wholehearted faithfulness. So Barnabas gets there. He sees that God is at work even among these crazy Gentiles. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So look what he's doing. He doesn't make any exceptions. Here's the good man. He realizes that all these people, God is working in their lives. All these people are His creatures. All these people are equal in their standing before God as human beings in their need as sinners. He sees them all. So He encourages them all, and He encourages them all to give all their heart. Now, of course, the word Barnabas uh, in Aramaic uh, means bar is son. And Navas is encouragement. So he's a son of encouragement. His very name he's, he's named as a great encourager. And you'll find in the Bible that one of the most powerful weapons we've got is that of encouragement. And I just encourage you this morning to look at Barnabas and think about this as you go home. Think about the people that are closest to you where they say, you know, my dad is just so encouraging to me. My husband builds me up. He just encourages me all the time. My granddaddy. I mean, I just he just thought I was hung the moon. That's what that's the legacy we want to leave. That's the message you want to leave with those that are closest to you. That they have gotten encouragement from you. You being able to see in them the evidences of God. You say, Well, you know, you don't preacher, you don't know my son, I and mean, he's way off the ranch, man. He's he's bad news. Yeah, like you. If, I had a, if we had a show of hands here, how many of you, you know, went off the ranch? How many of you, if your parents really knew what you were doing, they would have been massively disappointed in you? And how many of you would say, it's just a good thing people didn't know everything that was going on in my life? And how many of us would admit, you know, the only difference between me and those people down there at 201, they got caught. It's true. And the older brother in the parable doesn't remember who he is that he's been there with his father the whole time and had the privileges of being a son the whole time. And now he's resentful because another unprofitable, unworthy son is being welcomed home. So we take delight in the grace of God and we encourage other people. And one of the greatest things you can do, gentlemen, and everybody can do this, find somebody who receives your encouragement. Now, some of you have the ability to encourage people who are older than you are, smarter than you are, and in a position of influence that's greater than yours. Some of you have that gift. It's a unique gift. Not too many uh, have it, but some of you do. Most of us can encourage people who are our peers, and every one of us can encourage someone who's behind us. So if if you're more the average sort of Joe, then what you normally have to do if you're going to exercise the gift of encouragement is look for people who are under your influence. That's where you have to go. Who's under your influence? And you encourage along those lines. Usually, when we're climbing the ladder, we don't care about those people. We're thinking about people up here, people that normally we're not very good at encouraging. We don't even think they want our encouragement. Actually, they do, but we don't think they do because they're intimidating. And we fail to look here, which is where our real ministry is. Gentlemen, that's where your ministry is. People under your influence. And you want to pour encouragement into their lives. I mean, I've told somebody this, but I'll never forget when I was first wrestling with the idea of whether I should leave my business, work, and you know take off my three-piece suit and put on a pair of blue jeans and go to seminary. That was a shocker when I did that. But when I was wrestling through that decision, it was really uh, agonizing. Yeah, you know, by that time I had two children, and a wife at home, and yeah, you know, all these concerns. And and besides that, uh, you know, when I told a couple of my friends what I was thinking, they laughed at me. I mean, I laughed at myself. Who? Why, why would I think that I should ever go to seminary and be a pastor? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, one of, one of my best friends, a godly guy, when I told him, he just looked at me. and said, "Have you prayed about this?" <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> and I've already told you, and I told my wife, she literally fell out of the bed. I mean, literally, the lights were all off and it was dark. She fell, the woman fell on the bed, out of the bed on the floor. I thought, I could destroy half my friends with this news. You know, they run off the road and have accidents and everything. Well, I'll never never forget when I went to my session. This was a little Presbyterian church in New England. I went to my session. These were elders and they were old. And uh, one of them You've heard me speak of before. His name is Gerald Penny. He's gone on to be with the Lord. He was one of the older, old guys. And Gerald Penny had come through Nova Scotia, and he was a worker. He was a stone worker, and he was very common life. I mean, he he lived in an upstairs apartment with his wife, Anne, in in an old clabbered house, wood clabbered house down the hill from the church. And they would often walk to church, but in inclement weather, he would drive his old 67 Chevrolet uh, to church. Uh, and Gerald didn't own much. His, his name's easy to remember because I always remember it this way. He doesn't have two pennies to rub together. Gerald Penny. But when I was speaking to the session and stumbling along with what I thought the Lord might be doing in my life, he was sitting right next to me. I was presenting to the session and with the elders in a circle, and he was right here. After I stumbled through it, you know, the pastor asked me to tell what was on my mind, and I stumbled through it in about 10 minutes. I'll never forget, he just put his hand on my shoulder and he he had a Nova Scotian accent. He just said, brother, whatever is mine is yours. Of course, he didn't have anything. But but he actually did. He could have given me the universe and it would have been no better than what he just gave me. I mean, how long ago was that? 35 years ago? I remember it like it was yesterday. I can still feel his hand on my arm. One simple word of encouragement. It's unbelievable. Now, Gerald went on to be with the Lord, probably had no idea of the impact of that statement. But to me, you know, as a 27-year-old, I'm sitting there listening to this 75-year-old tell me that he would put his whole life in with me, that he would invest with me, that he believed in me, that whatever he had was mine. That's incredibly powerful. That man was a Barnabas. That That man was a good man. And he found, you know, Gerald didn't have much influence in this world. But you know what? All he had to do was go down about 50 years in age and he found somebody who would be under his influence. And I tell you what, he nabbed me. And I've been under his influence ever since. He went looking for people he could encourage. And Barnabas was just that way. And that's the reason he was sent to Antioch in the first place. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city. It was about the fourth largest city in the empire and about the third or fourth most impressive and influential. People from the east, people from the west were migrating through there, had all kinds of groups, including a little Jewish ghetto. And it was, it was wilding. All these people now, this is where the gospel was going was gonna to flourish, across ethnic lines. And it takes a man like Gerald Penny, it takes a man like Barnabas to go and see the grace of God, encourage people to give their whole heart, everything. To the Lord. That's a good man. Now thirdly, notice in verse 24, he's full of something, not himself. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24. He was a good man. There you have it. Why was he good? Because he was full of God. If you are to be a good man, you must be full of God, full of the Holy Spirit. That's what, remember we we said there are two great mysteries in the Christian life. One is that your, your punishment's been paid for that God has sent His Son to die on the cross for you and to make the payment you should make. By all sense of human justice, you should have made that payment. But God made the payment for you through His own Son. That's a mystery. How could that happen? But the second mystery is that you who are on your own and apart from God now not only are reconciled to God through the cross, but now God takes up residence in your life and He fills you with Himself. So a good man gets his goodness from the only source from which you can get goodness, and that is God Himself. So of course, a good man must be full of the Spirit because that's the only place you can get goodness is from God. And that's the reason that Barnabas was a good man. He was full of God. You say, how can I get full of God? Gentlemen, it's the same way that you receive Jesus Christ as Savior. You receive it by faith. When when the Bible tells you that if you'll believe on Him, He will give you everlasting life. You believe that. You put your hopes and dreams on that. You believe it. You lean on it. You rest in Him. You trust what He's saying to you. When He tells you that the cross provided the atonement for you, the cross made the payment for your sin, tomorrow is Good Friday, you believe that. And some of you will go to a Good Friday service tomorrow and you believe the message that Jesus Christ actually paid for my sins. You do the same thing with God taking up residence in your life. You say, God, you want to live in me? You, the holy, good, and true God, the one true and living God, you want to live in me, a broken man? You do? I can't believe this except it's written right here in the Bible. I believe it and I receive it and I ask you, Lord, to come in. So, Lord, I ask you to... Receive the sacrifice of your son on my behalf on the cross. And Lord, I ask you to fulfill your promise in my life, to send your spirit. Now open my life and I ask you to come in. You say that you you behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I ask you to come in. I hear you knocking on the door. Come in and have fellowship with me and let me be your partner. Let me be your friend as well as your servant and your son. Let me be close to you. You ask him. You want him and you believe him. And gentlemen, he has never turned anybody away. This is the way Jesus put it. If your son asked you for a piece of bread, would you give him a rock? What man would be so cruel that when your own son, your little infant child, is reaching out for a piece of bread, you give him a piece of gravel, would you do that? And here's what Jesus said. So the Lord Jesus will give the Holy Spirit to anybody, the Father will give the Holy Spirit to anybody who asks Him. He looks at you the same way you look at your own son and you ask Him for Himself, is He going to hold out on you? The answer is no. And the only reason men don't have the Spirit in their lives, they don't ask, they don't really want Him. They want to live in the darkness. They want to live lives apart from God. They want to image manage. They want certain people to think they're upright. That's good for business. But they don't really want to be God's son in this world. If you want him, gentlemen, you have him. And he's eager to come in. And he's knocking on the door. That makes a good man, full of the Spirit. Notice in verse 24, he's also full of faith. And you'll find with Abraham, here's the model in Hebrews 11. In fact, you can look at Hebrews 11. All these people of faith, how did they live their lives? by believing the promises of God. And they refused to make their business plan and their personal plan and their lifestyle plan and their family plan. They refused to make all those plans based on just common sense. They refused to do that. They were men of faith and they made their plans, their business plan, their family plan, all their plans. They made their plans based on the promises of God. Who is God and what has He promised? And what does He command? And Noah was told to build an ark and for years and years and years, people made fun of him. Noah, what in the heck are you doing? Your backyard is gone. It's just full of this big contraption you got back there. It's, you're an idiot. They were told him that for decades, they were telling him. He was an idiot. But he made his entire life plan based on the promises of God and the commandments of God. That's what he did. And now at the end of the day, who was wise and who was foolish? The ones who went blub, blub were foolish. And the ones sailing along in their boat were wise. And it's exactly the way it is today. You don't just make your life on common sense, on what works out there, pragmatism. You don't make your plan that way. You make your plan based on what God says He is and what He wants from us, and we give it to Him gladly. And we trust Him with the outcome. We believe. We trust Him with the outcome. There's faith. And Barnabas believed that. If he would just walk with God, God would bring the outcome. Now notice in verses twenty five and twenty six this is remarkable we 've only got four minutes i 'll have to race through these, but Barnabas partners with others in ministry. Barnabas was sent to Antioch, and it would have been very tempting for Barnabas to say you know i 'm sure glad those those bishops back in Jerusalem had enough sense to send a good man like me over here i 'll get this thing straightened out and i 'll go back to Jerusalem and testify to the fact that these people are real christians and Shoot, I'll be the Bishop of Antioch. <laughs> you know, before this is over, I'll be the Bishop of Antioch. I mean, I'll be the that's not what Barnabas did. Barnabas took one look at that motley crew that had Easterns and Westerns and Northerns and Southerns in it. I mean, all these different languages, a, a very multicultural church. He took one look at him. He said, I know just the man for the job. It's Saul, who years ago was taken out of Jerusalem because he was causing so much trouble. And as soon as he left Jerusalem, in the end of chapter 9, Jerusalem had peace. So Paul goes up to his hometown in Tarsus. He's been up there for years. He's been evangelizing. He's been studying. But he's completely out of the news. Barnabas goes and gets Saul. It's a hundred-mile walk in one direction. Barnabas goes up to Tarsus, and I'd love to hear this conversation. Here's the son of encouragement with a man who's this colossal leader and intellect and who knows he flunked in Jerusalem and probably thinks his days for mass evangelism are over. Little does he know it hasn't even begun. And Barnabas goes to his house and says, Saul, I've got this situation down in Antioch. And Paul says, yeah, but Barnabas, you remember what happened in Jerusalem? I'm just not the right guy for this job. I just make everybody mad and I just need to get out of town. I don't think I'm the guy. Yes, Saul, you're the guy. You're the guy you speak the language, you're a Roman citizen, and you've been trained in the Jewish law. We've got all these controversies down there. You know the language. You know the culture. You're a wonderful teacher. I mean, all this encouragement. Paul gets convinced, and now he treks down 100 miles with Barnabas. Now, can you imagine Antioch? Here's a church where Paul is your Sunday morning preacher and Barnabas is your Sunday school teacher. Thank <laughs> you all. You want a church. And look what happens to this church in Antioch. Gentlemen, it becomes the staging ground for the Christian mission around the world. It's from Antioch that Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13 are sent out. They lay hands on him. All these different languages and groups, they lay hands on them and send them out. Why did they send them out? Because they live in all those places, they came from Ephesus and from Rome and from Philippi and from all over the world, and they said, "Paul, will you check out my hometown hey paul don 't forget to go over here. Paul has contacts everywhere because this church of Antioch has come alive, and there 's one reason: God sent a good man over there who was able to humble himself and elevate other people who noticed gifts around him and was not driven by his own pride and ego. He was called by the kingdom of God. He was seeking the kingdom and His righteousness. And whatever it takes to promote the kingdom, that's what Barnabas was doing. He's a good man. Now lastly, i got one minute on this one. He gives generously encourages others to do so. In verses 27 and 30, I wish we had the whole hour to talk about this. Gentlemen, I believe that verse 27 and 30 represent the first cross-cultural charitable gift ever given. You don't hear anything in Roman history about the Romans sending a gift to Alexandria, Alexandria Egypt to help the poor. You don't, read a, you don't read a story anywhere about a gift being taken from one nation to another or from a one culture or ethnic group to another until you get to Acts 11 in human history. Look what Barnabas did. This man who is good. A good man is always generous. Always. Why? Because God is generous. And Barnabas encouraged generosity in others. And they take up a collection not for their own poor. And they could have said, well, we've got plenty of problems right here in Antioch. Yeah, we've got problems in Antioch and we're going to deal with Antioch. But we also got problems in Jerusalem and we're going to deal with Jerusalem. And we've got some brothers and sisters there who need help. The good man is a man who sees the world as God sees it. He stays in touch with where the poor are. I told our church last Sunday, the average or the median household income in this world is $4,780. 80% of the world's population makes less than $10,000 per year, gentlemen. 80%, 5.1 billion people are making $10,000 or less. If you make the poverty level... In America, which is $22,000 for a family of four, you are making twice as much as 80% of the world make. So, we, I mean, we have poverty issues right here. In fact, in Memphis, we have 26% of the people who can't afford to feed their families. That's, that's a tragedy. That's something that ought to get, grab our hearts. Every good man responds to that. That's the message. Every good man responds to that. And then every good man also notices that our poor are wealthy compared to the poor in sub-Saharan Africa. And we have a plan to divest ourselves. We have a plan to make a contribution to the poor here and around the world. A good man will do that. Why? Because God lives in his heart. And God cares about those who are marginalized, bereft, and in need. There's a good man. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When He takes up residence, He, in your heart, He begins to bear this kind of fruit, the fruit of goodness. And it's radically different from from what you see apart from Jesus Christ in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being so good to us because we are the poor and the lost and the broken and the undeserving. And You have crossed the barrier from heaven to earth to come and get us. And now we pray that You'll teach us how to express and live out that same goodness. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name, the good Savior. Amen.